Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family vdw group no purchase necessary void where prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus this is an unspoiled network podcast. This is Spoil Me, covering the Mage Errant series, book one, Into the Labyrinth. Chapters one, two, three, and four, Hugh of Emblem, The Choosing, Master and Apprentice. In these chapters, Hugh has a bit of overcoming he needs to do but the problem is nobody seems to know what he has to overcome except for this one dude who luckily tunes in for a second this school truly failing its students welcome to spoil me Welcome to the show, everyone. I am Natasha. Thank you so much to Dan for commissioning this episode. Dan is here in the chat. Hi, Dan. And uh, Dan has also commissioned the second book in the series. So have no fear, folks. We are definitely going to be getting through some of these. And I am really interested in this because Dan presented these the series to me in a DM on Discord and was talking about how the author of this and Will White, the author of Cradle, are friends. And I can't remember, Dan, which of these books came first. I know I could have looked this up, but I hate looking things up relating to something I'm covering because you can get spoiled in the most unlikely of places. So I just don't like to risk it. Um, but there are definitely some parallels going on here with Hugh's situation and Lyndon's situation. And if folks who are listening to my coverage of this have not listened to the Cradle series, I just want to warn you, there are going to be some mild spoilers that uh, about information that doesn't get revealed until probably like book two or three of the series. And I'm not going to give major, like totally shattering spoilers, but I want you to be prepared. So the Cradle series is excellent. Highly recommend that you read it. If you don't want to be spoiled, go read it. You will tear through it in like a week. Come back to this. But I just wanted to let folks know because there are some very distinct things that I feel like are lining up that I really want to talk about. However, this is not a compare a book to the Cradle series podcast. It is just a like this is really what Dan said, I think, was something like what if Hogwarts, but like better. And honestly, 
that is the vibe. It's like Hogwarts, if Hogwarts like took its teaching a little bit more seriously, it really is, is kind of the feeling. And if it was more true to life about how it handles conflicts between students, um, it's an interesting thing in, you know, in Harry Potter, we've got this like one asshole privileged kid whose father has pull at the ministry and is important and has money. And he gets away with some stuff due to that, but there's a real clear vibe that none of the teachers like him except for Snape. He's got his cronies, but generally seems to be like viewed with some disdain by a lot of folks. And unfortunately, and I'm not speaking from experience because I didn't have this sort of dynamic at my school, but I have talked to and read about schools that do. And this is uh, something that I have seen be particularly prevalent in a lot of British schools. But if you are a teacher who has contact with a student from a particular family, you have got to be careful about how you treat them because it will wind up changing parts of your life if you're not careful about it. And, you know, in in the Harry Potter universe, teachers just kind of were like, no, you're getting detention, you're getting extra homework. That shit can be not, that doesn't necessarily fly if you are in the real world and somebody wants to make your life shitty. So I am very uh, interested to see how this continues because there's a whole thing going on here. So... Um, George says Cradle was first by a year, I believe. Cradle was 2016. Mage Errant was 2018. Oh, okay. So two, about two years, maybe, you know, give or take. Um, so, and Dan says, and if the magic system at the school made sense, that's the other thing. You know, Harry Potter, it's very, uh, kind of up in the air as to why anybody is particularly good at the things that they are good at. Harry is very average at regular spell work, but he's this amazing flyer. And it's sort of implied that's just like genetic, you know, his dad was a good flyer and this is just something that Harry is also good at. But in this universe, it seems like while your talents specifically may not seem to come from particular places, which that is sort of just also real life. Some of us are really good at drawing. Some of us are really good at math and we don't know why. There is still like a lineup between their talent and the way that magic works that causes them to excel, you know? Um, so I'm going to start off the very first. Uh, it's interesting. The very first sentence of this book <laughs> It's actually technically two sentences, but I will admit I was, my initial reaction was, oh no, because Hugh of Emblen wasn't good at much, but he was very, very good at hiding, which was good because he really needed to be. And the, just the use of the word good, which was good. I was just like, we're getting a little redundant already here. And we are two sentences in, we better pick it up a little bit. But I will say that it is kind of funny when you step back and look at a lot of YA, especially how many books start with a kid who's being pursued by bullies. This is just a really popular way to start a story. And I, that is not shitting on this at all. There is a reason why that works. And it 
always works. Like I am always, oh no, oh, I hope they don't catch you. Because I wasn't really bullied in this way, but I'm very sensitive to the concept of it. And I hated watching kids get bullied at school. I just tried to sort of blend into the background and not really draw attention to myself. I never participated, but I also never stood up for anybody because that was part of trying to blend into the background. I knew if anything shifted slightly left, I would definitely become a target because I was a weird kid. So I had great sympathy with the kids who couldn't seem to judge when to shut the fuck up or when to act like A instead of B. And I would watch this thing unfold that I was like, oh, it was inevitable that they were going to get jumped on for this. But I really, this sucks, you know? Um, And this kid, Hugh, is hiding from a kid called Rhodes. And Rhodes is as, he is basically the exact opposite of Hugh in every way. Tall, where Hugh was short. Muscular, where Hugh was skinny. Handsome, where Hugh was forgettable. Nobility, where Hugh was the son of merchants. Blue-eyed to Hugh's brown eyes. Blonde to Hugh's dark hair. And a far, far better mage than Hugh had any hope of being. Even Rhodes' white uniform was clearly custom-tailored to him, unlike Hugh's poorly-fitting off-white uniform from the Academy's supplies. And I really appreciate that mention, too, because so many people have this idea that school uniforms are like the great equalizer and that kids are so preoccupied with what they're wearing and the status symbol of like certain pieces of clothing or brand names that if we all just wore uniforms, they wouldn't be preoccupied with that sort of thing and they would be – it wouldn't be immediately apparent who had money Or had parents who did not neglect them. But the thing is, school uniforms cost a type of money, man. And they are not the sort of thing that you can, like, get a cheaper version of. Like, yeah, I may not be able to afford designer jeans, but I can wear jeans and and fit in because they're just close enough that nobody cares. But... School uniforms are fairly expensive, and if your parents can't afford a bunch of changes of school uniforms and they can only afford, like, two sets, you're wearing the same clothes over and over. They wear out a lot faster. Maybe you don't get to wash them as often because you need them for the next day. And also, things like this. You can get them tailored so that they fit better. Some kids rely on a charity to get their uniforms at all. Then there are kids who have body types that don't fit well into the uniforms to begin with. Some kids were too big to fit the uniforms. And so they have to buy like as close to the uniform as they can, but not quite. And this was an issue for me working certain jobs where there was a standard uniform and I was a size 2X and their shirt went up to a 1X and I had to just get a red shirt that was close enough, but it still made me stand out as being the weirdo who didn't fit in the clothes. It's not that simple, man. Like I'm personally against school uniforms. I understand the thinking behind it, but in as much as the, the practical aspects go, I don't think there's any way to hide who's got money and who doesn't in situations like this. If you have money, you're going to find ways to show people you have it. And it's just going to be detectable whether or not you are wearing the same kind of basic clothing as everyone else. Um, Dance in the chat saying money always finds a way to show off. That's exactly it. Um, So 
they keep calling him a sheep herder. And we find out later that the area he is from, Emblin, is kind of considered all sheep herders, even though that's clearly not true. And it's also an area where being a mage is like looked down on. So the fact that Hugh is here at this school is a bit of a mark of shame for his family. And it's sort of like question like, I thought he was from a good family. I can't believe they turned out a mage. What we wind up finding out later is that Emblem has the same number of potential mages living there, but the actual available mana that you can process in your body to become magic is way, way lower for reasons that they are still like trying to figure out, or at least that we haven't been informed of in the book so far. And so there are like a lot of folks who, if they were born anywhere else, would be mages. They just happen to be born in an area where it's not easy to like manifest the talents that make it obvious you can do this. And the reason that Hugh can manifest those talents is that he was born with an unusually large, like mana capacity and thus is able to put more into spells and get them to work. And this is just something that winds up biting him in the ass now that he is in a regular place trying to do the same spells in the same way as all of the other kids who grew up in much more ordinary circumstances. And, um, obviously when I, if those of you who have read the cradle series are going to know what I'm making this comparison to sacred Valley, it's a really similar thing where everything in this area has been suppressed purposely now, we don't know whether or not that's the case here, if it's like a deliberate thing that has cut off, but there is a mention of how everybody in Emblem like, brags about how they don't have mages anymore because they drove them out. And I'm just sort of wondering if mages weren't like, well, if you don't want us, then I guess you just don't need any of this anymore. And they just did something to the area. Um, so yeah, this winds up being something that like a teacher who's actually paying attention figures out, but evidently nobody else has like bothered looking into this at all. And there is an accepted, I don't know, I guess like tenant, I don't know if that's the word I want, but everyone just knows that no mages come from Emblem. That just doesn't happen. So him coming from there is already really weird. And nobody is questioning why that is. And if he is an obvious exception to that rule, what that might mean and why he isn't particularly good at this. Like, it just seems like they're all assuming, well, if you're from Emblem, Emblem I keep wanting to say Emblem, like, you know what I'm saying? If you're from Emblem and you are a mage when none of them usually come from there, 
it makes sense that you're bad at it because y'all don't make mages to begin with. So of course you probably would be an inferior mage just inherently, which just the amount of like assuming that goes into hand waving what's happening to him here is very infuriating. But again, also feels really true. That is sort of how people operate. Um, so Hugh, he has started kicking Hugh, uh, or no, Rhodes has started kicking Hugh while he's down. Somebody intervenes and we don't see who it is until after Rhodes takes off. There's a teacher here, a, a librarian. And, uh, he basically tells Rhodes to kick rocks, but I do appreciate how Hugh is like wincing because Rhodes was always worse for days after the rare occasions a teacher or other mage interfered. I really appreciate that as well. You know, like, this is not to say that I don't think adults should interfere with bullies. Of course they should, like bare minimum. But adults who think I interfered and I haven't seen him do anything, so I think it's over... Don't fool yourself, man. They're just finding ways to torture this kid in such a way that you won't see it or that he can't specifically point out anything that's being done. That's what's so annoying about bullying is that it takes really different forms. And there's things like this where a kid's just getting straight up beat up, you know, and that's a very obvious and direct thing. But there's a lot of ways to bully. And some of those ways, kids are very sly and they know exactly where to stop so that if somebody were to complain, it makes them look like a tattletale or a baby, or it's the sort of thing that just doesn't sound that bad when you talk about it secondhand. But when you're experiencing it, it just causes this like low level constant anxiety that bothers you throughout the day. I just hate this for him. And Rhodes is so like the way he's zeroing in on this kid, it doesn't feel like he is necessarily like this with anybody else. That's not, I'm not saying that doesn't happen because Rhodes strikes me as probably just a bully to most people, but it seems like there is something about Hugh, whether it's where he's from or the fact that he just is not good in class. And if he weren't from Emblem, it wouldn't matter. It would still be that he sucks. Something about the weakness that Rhodes perceives in him is really drawing Rhodes's attention. And it makes me really curious because that is a thing with predators. They will zero in on someone because they sense a weakness. But what what does this look like once Rhodes has got some more skills under his belt? Because he winds up getting this position with a teacher that I'm not excited about. Um, so this librarian, after, after he saves Hugh and Rhodes goes away, he's like, do you think I should report them? Like, what do you want me to do? He asks, which I do appreciate. And Hugh basically says, there's no point. He, his uncle is the king of Highvale and he's the most promising mage in our year. All the teachers just stand to gain by staying on his good side. 
Uh, none of them are going to stick their heads out for me. And the teacher looks at him for a little bit and then is like, all right, well, and then says next time, try hiding in the stacks instead of the main law section, much better hiding spots. Plus the reading material is much more interesting. He looked like he wanted to say more, but turned and left. And eventually Hugh does take his advice and finds like an abandoned room, which I have to imagine this teacher knew was there and was thinking about specifically saying and then just decided to let him find it on his own and not inform him of it specifically, which I think is the smart way to go. Like you want this kid to have the security of believing that he is somewhere nobody at all will find him. If a teacher has made it clear he knows this place is here, I don't think Hugh moves into it the way that he winds up doing. Um, so this is when he goes to class and they're trying to light sticks on fire and it's super basic. It's like, you know, Wingardium Leviosa kind of thing. And he can't do it. And the teacher, who is genuinely trying to help, puts him on the spot in front of the entire class, who is watching him and only him trying to do this thing that everyone else has been able to do without a problem. And it's so painful to read. Like, I get that this teacher is trying to help, but I just want them to step back for a split second and think for any amount of time at all about what it's like to be scrutinized by a room full of people while you attempt something they have all done and you can't do. It doesn't feel like it should take that big of a leap to realize in how incredibly uncomfortable that is. Like, that's a nightmare, you know? Um, and... He is like doing what he is told and it says channel your madra and he is doing it correctly. And then it says the stick jerked out of his hand and smacked him in the forehead. The whole class burst into laughter. The teacher made Hugh try six more times in front of the class before she finally gave up. And it makes sense once you find out that he is using way too much mana to do this simple spell he probably, that is why it like jumped out of his, his hand and hit him in the head. And I just really like, it's so frustrating to know how basic the issue is that he's having and that he's being put through this, you know, um, <laughs> brain case in the chat just wrote Madra. I guess I've been calling it Madra instead of mana. My bad. That's a cradle term for those who don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, he says, you're going to call this kid Lyndon at some point. I may. I, he doesn't feel like Lyndon, though. He doesn't have the personality the same way. It's a very different vibe. Um, I just feel so like there is nothing worse to me than being really bad at something and surrounded by people who view you with contempt you know, and this is part of my issue, obviously. I have an issue with failure, not being good at stuff, perfectionism, all of that. But I have worked jobs where I was just not catching on. 
And I knew that the people I worked with were beginning to lose their patience with me. And I would literally like say prayers in my car before going in for my shift because I was desperate. I know I'm an intelligent person. I know that I am an organized person. I am not incompetent. And yet it was less the work itself and more the derisive vibe of everyone around me that got under my skin and completely fucked me up and things that I would be able to do perfectly adequately at home privately. Once I got into the kitchen with these people, I couldn't do it. And it was just, it was like a slow motion nightmare to watch myself make these mistakes that I never made at home. And I just really felt for him. He is just going through it here. Um, so this is when they start, we find out about the choosing, which is a series of like different masters in certain areas who take on apprentices from the student body. And there's a guy who is named uh, Aiden Dragonslayer, and he apparently has a, an affinity for five different types of magic. And apparently that is almost unheard of, like just so incredibly rare. Most people have one, sometimes two. Two is fairly common, but there are occasionally people with three, which is pretty unusual. Four, extremely unusual. Five is bonkers. That shit's out of pocket. And, uh, just the entire, like, direction that this goes in, that some people can do one, two, up to five. I'm curious if we're going to find out more about why some people can and others can't. If there's any really specific reasoning behind that, or if it is just a matter of chance and the way you're born. Um, so... The chapter ends with Hugh going to his his room and intending to just get a breather from the fucking stress of the day. And he opens his door and Rhodes and his friends have broken in and absolutely destroyed the place. Somebody even like pissed on his mattress. And he is just moved to tears here because the one thing that he has been very good at is warding. Even though he's not good at the other spells, his wards have been particularly excellent. And if Rhodes was able to get past them this easily, what Hugh is theorizing is that Rhodes probably went to a teacher and got like special tutoring about getting past certain wards just so that he can bust into this kid's room and fuck up his stuff. And honestly... This, this moment is just so, uh, if he didn't have, if he didn't even have the privacy of his own room, Hugh felt like he'd go insane. He had nothing else. He didn't have any friends. No one from Emblem ever wrote him, ashamed that a family of good Emblem stock could have a mage in it. He'd been rushed off to Skyhold almost the instant his mage gifts became apparent. It was worth it to his family to hide their shame, not that they'd ever had any pride in him in the first place. And I was like, damn, what's that about now? And he just sinks down like on the floor and just starts crying. And that's how the chapter ends. 
And yeah, invading your space, like a bully, the the one thing that most of us can say when we were growing up, at least if you're, you know, my age or within a few years, is you could go, go home and get away from somebody. But we live in an age now where online bullying is such a thing that that's no guarantee either. And then if you are in this situation where you are like sharing a living, at least a building, forget it. Just rude and unfair. I hate this for him. So chapter two, the choosing. And this is when he is beginning to like go through the stacks and he, we find out that like most of the classrooms at the school don't even have windows. So there's a spot where he finds a window in the uh, library and is just like gazing out and really excited to see the sky. And I was like, that sucks. Like, I just, that feels like a real oversight. Why? Is there a reason for that? Like, you know, magically speaking, I don't know. Um, and we get a little bit of a mention here of the, uh, the like sort of wilderness area that has a lot of monsters in it, which I have to assume we are going to be getting a little bit more of eventually. So he, um, he is able to find this like abandoned, uh, room that I had almost wondered if this was a room of requirement type of thing that like manifested because Hugh needed a place to be alone. And it may as well have, even if that's not actually what happened, but it just feels to me like probably the librarian knew what he needed. So he makes a sort of living space here. He can't fit like a mat, he, you know, he can't bring a bed, but he can put blankets down and sleep in a sort of nest like that. Um, and he drags a chair up, puts new wards up, and he sleeps and misses the morning classes. Um, and over the next few days, Hugh fell into a new pattern. He scrounged the stacks for old sacks, discarded papers, and the like, eventually managing to construct a crude but comfortable mattress. The ruined school uniforms were surprisingly easy to get replacements for. Students were expected to ruin quite a few uniforms while learning magic. The stacks had their own bathrooms. They weren't as nice as the restrooms in the student halls, but they still had the same running water, a luxury that Hugh hadn't known back in Emblin. And even if there weren't showers, he could still get clean enough using rags and the sinks. And honestly, you know, he's making the best of it. I can't help but admire how he's just like, I'm going to adapt to the situation. And what I was doing wasn't working for me. It was no longer safe. I'm going to find another place. Like, that is just the smart thing to do. Um, and he is able to do enough light spells that he can make things like livable. Um, so then we find out about these origami golems. Y'all, this sounds so dope. Many of the librarians were paper mages and crafted folded paper golems to accomplish a wide variety of tasks. 
Paper cranes and miniature paper dragons were folded up messages that would unfold themselves upon reaching the receiver of the message. Knee-high paper monkeys were regularly sent down into the stacks to retrieve books. Hugh helped more than a few of them retrieve a difficult book from the stack shelves. Surprisingly, none of the faculty seemed to notice his disappearance from his dormitory room. Or maybe it wasn't surprising given how little they expected of him. And I was, I'm still sort of wondering about that. Like, is there something being done to keep it unnoticed that he isn't in his room? I don't know how they track that, you know? Um, but when I went to boarding school, we had a house mother basically who went through the, like down the halls, opened every room and you had to be in her sight line and, you know, wave to her and have a, brief conversation and then she would move on to the next room just to check that you were where you, you were supposed to be and maybe they don't do that here or if they do somebody is sort of covering that for him who knows but these golems just sound really cool and paper mage i'm into it i like this idea a lot like that feels like something that might I might have a bit of an affinity for personally. I am just obsessed with stationary stuff to begin with. It just feels like, you know, I'm into it. Um, and he runs into the librarian that saved his ass a couple times, but that librarian does not speak to him. Just kind of gives him looks a few times. Um, the day of the choosing came at midwinter, just under a month after Hugh had moved into his little library room. And the thing is here that everybody who is being chosen to be an apprentice is really hoping to be picked by somebody who is sort of like a badass and famous in some way, unless that's not what folks want for themselves, like for, for what kind of mage they would like to be. But for most of these kids, there's a real like pursuit of glamour vibe going on and the dragon slayer guy is the one that most folks seem to be really really hopeful they're going to get chosen by and he doesn't take apprentices apparently i don't think they say ever so the fact that he does pick somebody even though hugh really didn't expect it at all the fact that he doesn't get picked he can't help but be kind of crushed by it and i was like I understand that, you know, there are things that you're just like, I had no expectation, but you realize in your heart, there was still that tiny glimmer of hope. Expectation is too strong a word, but hope was definitely there. Um, and I'm going to describe this. The mana that everyone channeled from the ether around them was identical, but it got converted in the body to different types. And this is again with cradle, you've got aura. And that gets turned into Madra. So here you've got Ether that gets turned into Mana. A mage with an affinity for fire could more easily convert etheric Mana to fire Mana. A mage with an affinity for plants could convert etheric Mana to plant Mana and so on and so forth. There were hundreds of known affinities and many of them overlap considerably with one another. To make it even more confusing, many mages had overlapping affinities. A, ma a mage with affinities for fire and earth, for instance, could probably train a mage with a magma affinity. 
You didn't necessarily have to train in a style of magic that matches your affinity, but it was much, much harder to train a different affinity. And Hugh straight up doesn't have an affinity. He has like tested himself for a bunch of things and he can't like identify anything. So what he is thinking is that maybe one of the janitorial mages will choose him because all you need to do for that is channel mana into something. And it, it's not about an affinity. It's apparently about like making devices work, which is a different thing. But he is really like dreading this because that kind of work, anything that's sort of labor related is looked down on by a lot of people, which is a bummer. You know, I just like, there's, there's definitely, it's understandable, especially for kids. There's something that unglamorous would be like, oh, I don't want that. But also as I get older, you know, people who do that sort of work literally keep the world running. And it's very frustrating to know how much it's looked down upon when it is the backbone of anything remaining functional, you know? Um, so, oh yeah. MX Shard says it, re it reminds me of Linden beginning of cradle, having to focus on using scripts instead of using actual sacred arts. Exactly. Very good comparison. Um, and, and sort of, you know, bringing up, uh, Dresden files here, we have Butters who is able to use instructions from Bob to make like artifacts, but Butters doesn't himself have magical ability. He can make objects that basically function magically with the aid of Bob, who he has like made a connection with, but he doesn't, he's not himself a wizard, but he still manages to like get shit done, you know, in his way. Um, so the first person to get up is Aiden and he picks Rhodes and Hugh is just like, ugh, gross. But apparently Rhodes can, he has an affinity for three different types of mana. So uh, it kind of makes sense that he got picked. Um, and then as it goes on and he's not being selected and he's starting to realize how slim his prospects really are, he starts to kind of tune out. And eventually... The librarian stands up and calls his name. And I love this. <laughs> he felt a brief moment of hope, then saw two other students walking toward the stage and his heart sank. Masters almost never took more than two apprentices. And then the librarian looks at him and is like, Hugh of Emblin. And he's like, oh, 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 shit. So he gets up and heads over there. And is thinking about, this guy probably just feels sorry for me. And then his next thought is like, okay. Which I really appreciated. Hugh is just low-key like, so maybe he pities me. Oh, well. So? At least I'm, I get something out of it. And I was like, that is the vibe. Truly. There are times where you have to have your pride and no, I don't want it to. And then there are times to shut the fuck up and just be like, well, at least I'm getting any sort of advantage from my pathetic pitiful situation and that's that's just totally fine with me um so he gets uh he's with two other people um the first taller by several inches had the dark skin and long pale hair closer to white than blonde of one of the residents of the southwestern coast cities 
The girl also had what looked like thin tree branch shaped burn scars on her hands and on one cheek. She had absolutely no expression on her face and kept her eyes straight ahead. The other apprentice was even shorter than Hugh. She was pale, but with a brilliant shock of long red hair. She also had more tattoos than anyone he'd ever met before. The tattoos were interlocking geometric designs done in a brilliant blue. It almost looked like someone had tattooed spell forms all over her. They ran down her arms to her fingers, up her neck, even onto her forehead and cheeks, though not onto the rest of her face. Hugh had never seen anyone like her and hadn't the slightest clue where she was from. As he eyed her, she noticed him looking and gave him a furious glare in response. And the librarian introduces himself. I'm Alliston Haber, librarian errant. In case you didn't catch each other's names, this is Hugh. The tall young woman is Sabe. Our heavily tattooed friend is Talia. And Talia says, I'm not your friend. And Hugh is just like, God damn. Okay. So when they finally have a moment, they stop. She says, what do you want with an absolutely useless mage? And I made the exact same assumption that Hugh makes, which is to say, that she is insulted at being taken by the same master as Hugh when Hugh sucks so bad and it's commonly known that he sucks. She's just taking it as a slight. And then Allison says, you're not useless, Talia. Not, uh, and she's like, nobody could make anything of me in my clan. I should have been a war mage and I'm a useless mess. And Hugh is like, wait, wait, hold on, what? And Alliston then is like, all right, dude, look, stop talking. I need to tell you guys something. Magic is not what they are teaching you here. The Academy is fucking up. And as time goes on, they expect all of their students to handle magic the same way. And they are making the classes larger so that teachers have less ability to focus on their individual students and take a look at what might be working and why. I believe that this school is like letting a lot of people slip through the cracks because they do not know how to handle them. And y'all know I am always a big fan of any sort of allegory to, for learning disabilities or just a person having a different like way of doing things and it being not only not understood, but not even acknowledged, you know, like it's just a really, it, this is the world for a lot of people. And I think many of us, as we've gotten older, especially now that the internet has made it possible to share our experiences, we're beginning to realize that some of the issues that we had in school were not because we were bad kids or stupid. It was because the way things were taught to us wasn't effective for the way our minds work. 
and especially those of us who are like neurodivergent, we're able to compensate and make it seem like we were getting by, but it was always a bit of like a panic and a last minute ditch effort to pull things together. Whereas it felt like other people were managing to do things the way they were expected to with like just the, the, the instructions given to them, they could just follow. And the idea of having something like a learning disability, so many people, it was not discovered until they were like a lot older or sometimes they were like assumed to have the wrong kind of learning disability. Um, and then there's people who have like, you know, ADD and they are considered to just be hyperactive and they can't focus and they don't listen. They don't pay attention. And this is something that needs to be like broken out of them. You know, it's just a shame how many cool things and uh, how many people out there had the potential in them to do something really neat. And then it just basically got like over time crushed out of their spirit. I just really hate this. It's so, it's so understandable in, in the, in light of, especially in the United States, how we don't funnel any fucking resources into public schools anymore. So yeah, larger class sizes do mean teachers don't have like aids and stuff anymore. And when you're dealing with children, like especially very young children, holy shit, you know, a classroom of 30 kids who are all under the age of like 12 or 13, that is a lot of energy. That is a lot to like keep focused and on track all alone. And that is just to get through the day. That is not to help them reach their optimal levels of academic achievement or artistic or musical achievement. Although that is in itself becoming rarer and rarer as well. So yeah, this whole thing just feels uh, extremely apt. And it's really interesting to me how how much a lot of what's going on in this feels reminiscent of cradle in certain ways, but cradle didn't have a school system. You know, it was just a societal thing versus a systemic in, in this very easy to pin down sort of way. Um, so it just came out looking really different. And basically as much as Hugh wants to like feel some hope about this, this dude, Alliston is just giving him crazy. He's just like, mm, I don't, I don't believe you. And she, <laughs> he says, everyone said I'd never succeed as a battle mage. And I proved them all wrong. And I'm very curious about that, but we don't get any more about that. So he then is like, it's not my place to tell your stories to each other. I, I recommend you share, but I don't require it. But I will tell you each about each other's magical problems. So Talia was born to a line of powerful fire mages. Her family was so confident she'd be another that they gave her flame enhancing spell form tattoos before her affinities had even manifested. Unfortunately, Talia 
isn't a fire mage. Her affinities lie incredibly strongly in bone and dream, both rare and powerful affinities. Her tattoos, however, have inhibited her abilities to control her gifts. They force her into trying to control her affinities as though they were both fire, which has resulted in at least one destroyed classroom. Which, uh, I love that, that her issues are straight up, her family had such an expectation, they literally tattooed it on her body as a child before she had manifested everything, which is a very literal interpretation of the expectations a lot of kids have on them. You know, it's just, this is so much of why I don't want to have children. It's like the, the, the kinds of mistakes that I, I hear about parents making, I could see myself making, I could definitely see myself doing that. Like it's, you know, so I just feel so bad for her that this is like, decided for her and then everybody is just like well i guess you're a failure y'all gave her the wrong tool and and taped it to her hand so that she couldn't put it down and now you're mad at her like really sabay was also born into a powerful lineage storm mages Sabay, however, seems to completely lack the ability to control her powers more than a few inches away from her body. For many mages, that might not be a problem, but storm mages didn't do anything up close. Sabay, unusually, was also born with a fourth affinite, no. I wasn't going to share your story, Sabay, merely, or that is part of my story, Master Alliston. And Hugh is like, a fourth affinity? A fourth? What the fuck? It genuinely like kind of that's is that real? What? He hasn't even like met anybody with four. The only other person that he's met with five was Aiden Dragonslayer. Oh, like over triple is just very, very rare. And then Hugh. I only figured out your problem after weeks of research. And this is when Talia says, everyone knows no mages come from Emblem. And f fucking Alliston has to be like, girl, I have said a few times now that what everybody knows is not a thing you should be bothering your head about. And this bitch just doesn't want to let that sink in. She's just really resistant to stopping and questioning the things that she has been taught. And I get it because it's like a difficult thing to really stop and acknowledge that maybe the people that you respected and believed in your life didn't know what the fuck they were talking about. But genuinely, girl, you need to just like maybe not talk right away every time anything comes up. She's a little bit too ready to share her opinion all the time. And there are going to be instances where you maybe just want to pipe down and fucking listen because you have already been proven to not know what you're talking about a couple times in a row. Take the L back off. But she's not really doing that. Um, so it turns out Emblin is a mana desert and likely has as many potential mages as any other nation. They merely never learn to use their abilities. Hugh, if he'd been any weaker, never would have manifested any abilities at all. 
He was, however, born with an astonishingly powerful talent. At only 15, his mana reserves are as large as those of many fully trained mages. As he gets older and farther along in his training, they will only grow even further. And again, have to mention Cradle. Um, and this is not something that Lyndon is born with. The way that Madra is stored in your core in the Cradle series is, it seems pretty standard person to person initially. Like you, it doesn't seem like there is a person who is born with just a bigger reserve than others. It depends on the practice of cycling that you use, how much room you can make. And he is given a cycling technique that is extremely difficult, but turns out to create some of the biggest Madra like pools that anybody has ever seen. So it's really grueling and feels thankless in the moment, but it has huge benefits long-term. And that is a major part of what makes him so talented later on is that he has so much Madra to draw from. So he and Hugh uh, you know, after some time passes for Lyndon, at least, are in a similar situation, weirdly. So it turns out, he says, um, you have many other oddities with magic, your lack of affinities, not unknown, but rare. And then your skill with wards. I investigated all three of you extensively before I chose you. Your wards are better than most, uh, than those of many full mages. Uh, they dissuade those from wanting to cross them in the first place, can differentiate between targets. Wards are complex, difficult beasts to wrangle. Just pushing more mana in would collapse them. Hugh is doing something much more unusual. He is imbuing them with his own will. You are what is known as a warlock. And that's the end of chapter three. And everybody believes that if you are a warlock, it means that you've made deals with demons. And it takes a little while for Alliston to convince his fellow apprentices that is not what's going on and that they can relax. A warlock is a specific type of mage who develops abilities by forming magical pacts with various powerful entities. Yes, a few warlocks, uh, sign contracts with demons for power, but they're very rare. Warlock contracts can be made with all sorts of beings, elementals, dragons, spirits, even spirits, uh, even sufficiently powerful magical items. The only requirements are that are that the being be magical, powerful, and sentient, or at least capable of developing sentience. The griffin riders of Sarnassus are warlocks who have formed magical bonds with their griffins. The sacred swordsmen of Havath are warlords who have formed magical pacts with their weapons. And when Talia is like, how do you form a contract with a sword? He's like, uh, it's a big thing that I won't get into, but there's a reason. And essentially what it boils down to is you better be a goddamn good negotiator though. And be very cautious about it because you could get into a situation where the terms are not advantageous and you are fucked. So be extremely careful about this whole thing. 
And the difference is that most warlocks don't have a lot of mana reservoirs because they don't need them. They get their power via other means. But because you are a warlock with these huge mana reservoirs, you've got a whole other situation that opens a lot more interesting possibilities up to you. And he gives Hugh a book um, that is a bestiary and tells him, look through this to start researching who you might be interested in making a magical contract with. And it's really fun because it's not like a book of, oh, these are griffins. These are unicorns. These are turtles, as the case may be. These are very specific magical creatures that are like famous and individuals and have simply lived forever. Like, you know, um, Hugh goes back to his little cubby hole in the library and he stops dead. The whole room has been actually furnished. And this got to me a little bit, you guys. There's a, a proper bed. Um, the rickety furniture has been replaced with better stuff. There are, you know, all of these other books that are more relevant to him. Novels, there's a clock, glow crystals installed in the walls. He even has like a refreshed window with better glass that he can see outside. And there's a note that says, I can't be having any student of mine sleeping on a bed of trash. And Hugh just bursts into tears again. And I really appreciated that. Like, it's it's not only having this place that has been made into a retreat for him and a teacher knows about it and is giving tacit approval. It's finding out that you have had nothing but self-loathing because you are bad at things and finding out that it is not your fault that you are bad at things. You were born under a particular set of circumstances that has led to you not getting what you needed. And finally, somebody has seen that in you and is promising to make that right. And I am absolutely like, I really appreciate that Hugh has so far now like burst into tears twice in the series and we're only at chapter four because I feel like a lot of writers might be loath to have their main character. If he does indeed turn out to be the main, but I'm going to assume he is to have him like start crying more than once. And I think that's a really like realistic depiction, man. You know, we may want to pretend that a stiff upper lip is the way. Fuck that. Genuinely. Like that's not, I don't admire that or anything. Um, so we get some really wild creatures here and I don't have a lot of time, so I won't go through every single one of them. But there is a kraken. And the thing is that he's getting descriptions of like where they live and their temperament, but not specifically the kinds of things you could get from a partnership with them. So Hugh has to kind of guess what might be a benefit, but he doesn't have any specific like information on that. Um, there is a minotaur. Which, uh, truly, no thank you. Just count me out. A minotaur, that's too far. Um, Zithix, 
an elephant-sized spider found in the depths of the labyrinth below Skyhold. This huge arachnid enjoys asking riddles of and toying with her prey before carrying back to her web to become part of her larder. And Hugh was like, excuse me? There's a labyrinth below us, which I have heard about, but there's just a fucking giant spider? I didn't... Okay, wow. And then Heliothrax, a basically sun dragon, friendly toward mankind, known to aid mankind against various magical beasts. And this is the one that Hugh was like, ooh, dope. Yes, please. Um... Jaskaloskus, the living pyroclasm, an ash elemental of immense age and power. He seldom leaves the volcanic caldera he resides in, but when stirred to anger is capable of wiping out entire cities. And Hugh is like, I'm good. Yeah, no, no on that one. And then Karna Scythe, the newest queen of the Gorgons, only having held power for about a century and a half. Unlike most Gorgon queens of the past, she's proven willing to tolerate human visits to the labyrinth and even engage in trade with some humans. And I'm just like, I mean, I don't know. I feel like her reasons behind that may turn out to be a little bit sinister. I'm just, you know, the fact that there's been like a whole no humans deal and then all of a sudden now it's okay to deal with her, I find suspicious, but, you know, maybe I'm just suspicious. Maybe that's just my problem. So that is the end of chapter four. But uh, yeah, I am very interested and and very specifically like wondering who Hugh is going to wind up making an alliance with because part of me feels like it's not even going to be a creature from this list. Like he didn't, this isn't the entire bestiary, first of all. And I don't, I, I wonder like how these creatures are found. If there's a possibility of Hugh like stumbling across something of power on his own. Um, I don't know. I don't know. But I am looking forward to finding out how Hugh can, adjust the way he's been performing magic so that he can do some of these basic spells that have been beyond him because pretty much my main concern right now is knocking roads on his ass so that's the thing i am most looking forward to is hopefully hugh being in a position where he can like actually defend himself and be a bit of a surprise to a dude who has tormented him um, all right. Well, I'm going to wrap up y'all. Uh, next episode is Thursday. So that will be chapters five through eight for those who are interested in reading along. And thank you again, Dan, for commissioning this. Appreciate you a lot. Thank you all for listening. And until then, toodaloo, motherfuckers. Spoiled Network Podcast.